It is indeed an honor and a privilege for me to uh, be here with you all this morning. Uh, Dr. Ray has an incredible legacy. I had the opportunity to first meet him. I don't know if you remember this. He serves on a uh, advisory board for the School of Ministry where I have the privilege of teaching. And so once or twice a year, they bring in the gurus, the guys that are doing it out on the trenches, and, um, and we get advice from them and, and insights from them. And it's a real uh, privilege to uh, have the honor of serving with Dr. Ray. I like calling him Raymond. I think that's cool. And um, my kids were asking me last night, where, where, are you, uh, where are we going tomorrow? I said, we're going to Palm Beach Community Church. And uh, one of them said, why, why are you preaching there? I go, well, uh, you know, because we're, we're friends and we're going to continue to be friends and reach more people for Christ together. Uh, but I started uh, kind of waxing eloquently, and I said, well, I guess I serve as a type of model for um, Pastor Ray, model of teaching and, and preaching. And the kids were looking at me, and they said, well, I don't, I don't get that. What do you mean by model? And I tried to explain a little more, and they said, well, I still don't get it. They said, but we don't, we don't get it, Bobby. What do you mean by model? And then my wife came in the room and said, kids, a model is a fake little plastic version of the real thing. So according to my wife, that's what I am compared to Pastor Ray, a small plastic version of the real thing. Hey, I am uh, delighted that you've chosen to be here, that we get a chance to do this thing together. We've been blessed in worshiping God through music, and now uh, I want to continue to worship God through the ministry of His Word. So let's pray. Father, we ask that you would still our hearts to hear you speaking to us through your word. I pray that um, everyone in here would, would leave here changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in thy sight. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name and for the sake of his reputation alone and all of God's people said, amen. Well, Dr. Ray is right. I'm from Miami, Florida, and my wife is from Miami, Florida as well, both born and raised. We went to college in Miami and then went away to, to Dallas of all places. We, we underwent culture shock, and I think to this day we're still recovering. Um. When I grew up, I was a bit of a rebellious kid, and my mom always wanted me to be in sports. To just, uh, she always said, "I wanted you to get your your wiggles out." And um, every now and then, she'd spike my milk with Benadryl, so I would calm down. Well, in high school, I she wanted me to join the swim team, so I joined the swim team in high school. And as you can imagine, uh, a man of my height in in a South Florida school, swimming is not a a natural gifting. Most of the guys they swam with look like Dr. Ray. And so actually for a Cuban, I'm really tall. I'm about 5'8", 5'7". But for what he is, you know, I, I look short. And so I joined the swim team and I, I would get in trouble a lot in, on the swim team during workouts because I was constantly talking back to the coach. So as a punishment, I would have to swim a 500. And a 500, 500 meters is 20 pool lengths uh, nonstop. And so he, the coach would say something to me in English. 
I would say something derogatory to him in Spanish. Even though he didn't know what I said, he knew it was bad. And he said, 500, Cueto. And I had to swim 500 meters, 20 lengths, nonstop. He loved it because, I don't know if you've ever been swimming before. When you're swimming that long, you can't talk while you're swimming. So it was very quiet. I'd come back. I'd badmouth him again. 500 more. And I actually started building up on an endurance to long-distance swimming. So I became the 500 swimmer on our swim team in Miami, Florida. Okay? And um, he liked it because he didn't have to see me, and I was quiet most of the time. And I was actually enjoying just the rhythmic, methodical component of swimming for long distance of time. And I actually got pretty good at it because I had so much practice. So we went to one specific meet. It was regionals in Dade County. And he said, I want you to beat your time by 30 seconds. And that's hard to do in swimming. In a 500, it's a little easier than what it sounds. And he said, the, the first part of it, I want you to go out as hard as you can. The second part, I just want you to hold on to the right speed. And the third part of the race, I just want you to go as hard as you can. And so I got really excited. While he was talking to me, I was actually thinking, wow, he really thinks I can do this. In my head, I thought, there's no way I could do it. I was saying yes, but I didn't think. And I thought, man, he really believes in me. He really thinks I can do this. And he goes, look, I know you can do it. Just go out and swim. And guys, I went out and I swam the hardest race I had ever swum before. I punched the wall. I looked at the time. I beat my time by 30 seconds. And I jumped out of the pool. And this coach, his name was Dr. Schroth. He was the chemistry professor. And I didn't take chemistry in high school, <laughs> but he was the chemistry professor in our school. And he went nuts. He started getting kickboards and throwing them at me publicly in front of everyone. And I said, man, you are crazy. You're crazy. What's your problem? I finished 30 seconds faster than my time. He said, I asked you to give me everything that you had. I said, I did, man. Look at the clock. Look at the time. I did. He said, if you would have given me everything, if you would have surrendered everything to this race, there is no way that you should have been able to jump out of the pool the way you just jumped out of the pool. <laughs> he said, you saved some. He said, you held back. He said, you met my goal, but you didn't meet your personal goal. You could have swum even faster than that. You didn't surrender. This morning, I want to talk to you about surrendering to Christ. Not holding back. Not having a plan B. Not having a safety net. Giving everything to Jesus Christ. And I want to talk to you about that from God's Word. And it's found in the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. The Gospel according to Mark, chapter 12. In the New Testament, there were basically three Jewish groups that did not like Jesus. They had a common enemy. The three groups were the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, they were kind of, uh, we call them liberal. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't read the Torah the right way. They didn't believe in a resurrection. Those are the Sadducees. They threw a lot of parties. And uh, the middle group were the Herodians. The Herodians were Jewish, but they were... Uh, political group, very close to Rome, really supported Rome. Everything was political. They were always involved in political parties. And then there were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the conservatives of the day. 
the Pharisees, they didn't just want the Torah to be proclaimed. They wanted it to be proclaimed a specific way, a right way. Listen to what the book of Mark says. Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So you have, out of the three groups I told you about, you have two. You have the Pharisees and the Herodians. And Mark is telling you their intention, their motivation. Mark does this all the time. He, he sort of pulls back the curtain to let you know what people are thinking. Luke does it as well. And he says the Pharisees and the Herodians, they want to trap Jesus in his talk. Now the Pharisees, they were the biblicists. They didn't like the way that Jesus taught the Bible. They thought he taught the Bible in a weird way, in a radical way. They felt that Jesus wasn't orthodox. The Pharisees wanted to have all-day Bible studies. Jesus didn't want to have an all-day Bible study. He wanted to be out with the people. He wanted to love and serve people that other people did not want to love and serve. You remember this Jesus, right? This is the Jesus that when a young teenage girl was caught with a married man and these religious leaders were going to stone her to death, the only one that would stand next to her was Jesus Christ. Put his arm around her and said, whichever one of you has not sinned, you're allowed to cast the first stone. And the Bible says that they all left. And then he tells her, you go and, do, and sin no more. That's Jesus. Pharisees didn't like that. The Pharisees... They watched, uh, they were the conservatives. They would watch Fox News. Maybe there's some Pharisees in here this morning. Then there were the Herodians. The Herodians thought Jesus was too radical in his teaching. The Herodians did not like the fact that Jesus said, I want you to rid your life of sin. They didn't like it when Jesus would talk about surrendering your life and deny yourself, take up your cross daily. They were good going to the synagogue on just religious times, but they felt Jesus was just way too radical. So the Herodians, they would watch MSNBC. All right, so you got Fox News, MSNBC, and we'll leave CNN out of it for this Sunday since I'm, I'm a guest. And so, so they want to they wanna trap him. Verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher. Now, in the first century Greco-Roman world, when you call someone teacher, that you're essentially saying, I am willing to submit under your teaching, under your authority. But Mark's already told us that they're being hypocritical. They're not being honest with him. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you're not swayed by appearances, but truly, repeat the word true twice, right? But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? See, in the first century time of Jesus, there were lots of taxes, not unlike today. So if you wanted to live in Jerusalem, there was a special Jerusalem tax. If you wanted to worship in the temple, you had to upkeep the temple. There was a temple tax. This tax that he's talking about, though, was a census tax. This was a very controversial tax. In fact, it caused a revolt in AD 6, AD 60, and AD 66. Believe it or not, it caused a revolt. The Jews didn't like paying anything to Rome, especially the Pharisees because of the coins. And this was a specific tax, and so they're trying to trick him. It's a trick question. You see, this census tax is the, the litmus tax, the litmus test, if you will, of who was a true Jew. And so they said, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? So if he says yes, the Pharisees say, you're, 
you're disobeying the law. Torah says you're not to put yourself under the authority of a foreigner. Caesar was a foreigner to a Jew. If he says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, the Herodians say, ah, sedition, rebellion, he needs to be imprisoned. You see, it's a trick question. Either way, it's a lose-lose. But Jesus is the master teacher. What is, how does he respond to this question? Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, Mark says this often, he says, knowing the intention of their hearts, knowing that they didn't truly believe in him, he, he repeats this all the time, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Denarius was a day's wage. A denarius was about the size of a dime. I have a dime here. So what I want you to do, I'm a professor, so I want you to have a visual. I want you to take out a coin from your pocket, okay? Take out a penny or a nickel or a dime or a quarter. I'm Cuban. Awkward moments don't bother me. I'll just sit here and wait till everybody gets a... If you don't have one, go to my wife. She has a bunch of coins. Anna, just throw them out. Make sure everybody has one. Penny, nickel, dime, quarter. And then I want to see it. I want you to lift it up. All right? Got it? Great. Now, if the ushers will come forward, I want you to... <laughs> All right, put it down. Thank you for doing that. So Denarius, we have a visual of one. It, it's about the... I'm going to withhold my comments about his nose. And um, so it's about the size of a dime. It's, it's a day's wage. And that's, that's an image of Caesar. Remember, Jews didn't like images because of the... One of the Ten Commandments, right? And it says, Jesus, it says, Caesar, son of divine. In other words, Caesar, divinity, son of God. And then on the other side of the image, and we have the other side as well, there's a picture of Caesar's wife. His name is Caesar's mom. His name is, her name is Livy. And it says, maximum priest. So on one side, it says Son of God. On the other side, it says High Priest. These are titles that we're going to give to Jesus Christ later in the New Testament. Jesus knew that this tax had to be paid with a denarius, a day's wage. And he says, give it to me. Now, a true Jew wouldn't have this coin in his pocket because it had an image on it. You say, well, uh, Bernie, you said, though, that they paid... Um, taxes. They would pay every other tax with Jewish coinage with no images on it. Rome let them do that. But this one had to be paid with this image. You see, it's all about, it's not all about that base. It's all about the image. And Jesus is essentially telling the Pharisees, let me have one of those coins you have in your pocket. I'm so pure, I don't even have one on me. And it says they, they got him one of those coins. And so he shows them the denarius. Now, this is a dime, and the dime has a picture of Roosevelt. And um, I need to get my eyes checked. It says Liberty. This is a nice one, 2014, in God We Trust. And then on the other side, it says United States of America, one dime. There's an image on it. And then Jesus is going to draw our attention to the image on this coin. 
Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Verse 16. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? Whose likeness, whose picture, whose inscription, the title, both. He's saying, look, I want you to pay attention to both. I want you to pay attention to the image, whose image is on it. And I want you to pay attention to the title. What is it saying? It's saying, Son of God. It's saying, High Priest. And they're saying, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And look at what he says. Verse 16, part B, they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to him, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar and render to God the things that belong to God. He uses this word render. It's different from the word pay. When you render someone, it means you owe someone something. He says you owe Caesar. Why do they owe Caesar? Number one, they owed Caesar for a successful aqueduct system. In fact, to this very day, if you go to Rome, if you go to any part of the former Roman Empire, there's still remnants of this incredible aqueduct system where they can get fresh water, cool water, to any parts of the Roman Empire. It's incredible. They look like little bridges, but those bridges had pipes on them. Water was flowing through them. Somebody had to pay for that, and he's telling the, his audience, you owe Caesar. You owe Caesar for the mail system that they had, the courier system in the Greco-Roman world. You could send a letter from one place to another place in the empire, and within 48 hours, they receive the letter. That's better than my Amazon, dot, my Amazon Prime account. Within 48 hours, you get the letter. You also owed them for their judicial system. Lots of the fundamentals of our legal system today come from the Roman system. And by the way, they come from the Jewish system found in the Torah. He says, you owe them for that. And so you owe Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So he's saying, this image, this inscription, this belongs to him. And so you should pay him that. You you should render this to him. So he says, you owe Caesar because it's his image, his inscription. But there's a link here. We've often thought that this text has to do with um, separation of church and state. And it is talking about how we respond to institutions. But it's actually going much deeper than politics and the Bible. There's a link here. In fact, in your uh, worship guide, we've provided you with the actual text. And the link is in that word image. So if If I may be so bold, I want to encourage you to either underline or circle that word image in your worship bulletin, your worship guide. Whose image, whose inscription, whose likeness is on this? Whose image is stamped on this? And they all say Caesar. And then he says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But then why does he bring up God? He's essentially telling them whose image is on you. Genesis chapter 1, verses 25, 26 say, let us create man in our image. We call this the imago Dei. Say that with me, imago Dei. Come on, man. Imago Dei. Yeah, good. Imago Dei means that you have God's image imprinted on yourself. 
James says that whether you are a follower of Christ or not a follower of Christ, everyone is created in the very image of God. We've limited this to say, oh, it means that man has a mind, intellect, volition, will, and spirit, or spirit, soul, and body. But really, this concept of the image of God in man is much bigger than that. It, it includes that. In addition to that, it, it talks about your self-worth, dignity, respect. When we talk about the Imago Dei in the university, I'll, I'll tell students, imagine that you're, uh, you're out at the beach, and it's early in the morning, and uh, you got your coffee next to you, and you're reading your Bible, and you got your journal, and you're just having an incredible day. You ever have those days that are just perfect? You smell the air, and oxygen smells sweet. You've had a sandwich, and it is the best sandwich that you have ever had. And you look at the sunrise, and the sun's just peering over the horizon. It's just an incredible moment, and you hear the waves lapping on the on the shore, and it's just an incredible time, and you're thinking about God and the beauty of God and the glory of God. Can you picture it? And then out of the corner of your eye, you see a little movement, and it's, um, you look a little closer, and it's, it's a homeless man. And he's got a scruffy beard with some dreads in it. It smells like beer and urine. And he's getting the He's getting closer to you. You're thinking, man, this guy's going to interrupt this perfect morning that I'm having. You take off your watch and you put it in your pocket. Just depends what city you're from. You'll get that. You might not get it. And Tell me, what element reminds you more of God? The, the beautiful sunrise, the ocean, lapping on the seashore, the sand, the shells? Or the homeless guy? Well, according to Genesis, the sun, the waves, the shore were not created in the image of God. That guy was. And so you can't believe in the image of God and man, the fact that man's been created in God's image, and that not affect the way you treat other people, all types of people. So Jesus is writing and he's saying, Whose image is on the coin? And then he's essentially saying, and whose image is on you? If the image is on the coin, and you need to pay Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and God's image is on you, what are you supposed to do with your life? Surrender it. Hold back nothing. Turn it all over to him. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar Give to God what belongs to God. Another thing I wanted to tell you about these coins in the first century Greco-Roman world is that they were uh, the, the quality of the metal wasn't good, and they were, uh, in fact, coin collectors call bad coins slugs because you can't even tell what they are. And so the stamp and the image and the inscription would be defaced and often erased. What they would do is they would take the coins back to the treasury and they would clean them and they would restamp them and put them back in circulation. There's probably someone here this morning that thinks God's image on me has been defaced, has been erased. That's impossible. 
you might feel that way, but that cannot happen. Listen to what Augustine said regarding this passage. We are God's money, but we are like coins that have wandered away from the treasury. What was once stamped upon us has been worn down by our wandering, but the one who stamps us, re-stamps his image upon us. He's the one who formed us. He seeks, he seeks what belongs to him as Caesar sought his coin. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Give to God what belongs to God. See, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they were challenging Jesus. They wanted to know about his loyalty to Caesar. Jesus does this all the time. He takes their argument. He flips it upside down. He says, I want to talk to you not about your loyalty to Caesar, which is important. I want to talk to you about your loyalty and your allegiance to God himself. So whose image is on your heart? You know, some people will never um, bother to pick up a penny. I don't think I pick up pennies anymore. Maybe a quarter. But then sometimes I think it's not even worth me getting down and, and dirty for it. The other day, uh, I went to go get a haircut, and since my kids don't have the privilege of being born and raised in Miami, we want them to get the Cuban feel. And so I go to a Cuban barber on uh, Forest Hill Boulevard and Kirk Road. His name's Javier. And uh, so I went to get a haircut with Javier, and I like taking my kids there because I only speak Spanish there, and it's, it's a good experience for them. So we talk about Cuban politics. I get my haircut. And then next to this barber shop, there's a Cuban bakery. And even though I already had breakfast, we go to the Cuban bakery. It's not for me. It's for them. It's, I, it's a sacrifice for me. I don't, I don't like to do that. So we get Cuban toast with butter. We get croquetas, which I don't have time to explain, but they're really good. And then we get Cuban coffee with milk, real coffee, not the dirty water you guys call coffee. And so real Cuban coffee means really strong stuff, cafe con leche. And um, so we'll have our experience there. And I was there with my son, uh, Nicholas, and we were leaving the, the bakery. And uh, I saw next to our car... There was an open spot, and you know that little the grease stain and right under the cars where they, they parked? There was a grease stain, a little indentation, a puddle, and in the puddle was a penny. And the puddle had grease on it. You know how when the water reflects, when it mixes with oil, it has kind of this reddish-purplish hue. And, and I see him going for it, and I grab him, and I said, that's dirty. And he looks at me, and he goes, it's a penny. I go, yeah, it's a penny. He goes, it's a penny. And he got down on one knee, and I said, that's filthy. Don't do that. And he's looking at me like I'm nuts. But, Dad, it's a free penny. Yeah, but it's dirty. It's still a penny. Yeah, but it's greasy. It's still a penny. Picked up the penny. Cleaned it on his shirt, which his mom to this day is not happy about. And then he put it on his, in his pocket. Some of you are here this morning. And you might say, I've been defaced. His image has been erased. God looks at you and says, but you're mine. Yeah, but I'm just a penny. Yeah, but you're mine. But you don't know of my past sins. But you're mine. Present sins. 
you're mine. Future sins. You belong to me. So he says, whose image is on this coin? Caesar. Give Caesar what belongs to him. Whose image is on you? And then God himself says, give me your life. They marveled at him. The text begins with them calling him a great teacher. They didn't mean it. Truly, you speak the truth. They didn't mean it. And they marveled. Jesus isn't satisfied with your words and my words. Marveling at Jesus isn't even enough. In fact, in the book of James, the half-brother of Jesus says, even the demons believe and they shudder. They even have an emotional reaction to the presence of Jesus Christ in their midst. More than what we could say about some people. Marveling is not enough. He wants surrender. Normally what we'll do is we'll compromise. We'll say, well, I'll give him a part of my life, not all of my life. I'll give him this area, not this area. This area is mine. I have here in my hand a pencil. And the pencil says, Palm Beach Atlantic University. Pencil, because I didn't pay for it, <laughs> belongs to the university where I get to work full time. Palm Beach Atlantic University. So technically, I should, I should give it back. But I don't want to because I've used it some. It, it feels good in my hand. It's got a nice, strong point. Not one of those points that's going to crack in a second. And the eraser's been used, but it has some good mileage. And I really want the point, because I've written a lot with this pencil. But it doesn't belong to me. It's not right to take, keep something that, that doesn't belong to me. So I'm going to do what most of us do with our hearts. I'm going to compromise. So I'm going to give the owner of this pencil, I'm going to give him the eraser, and I'm going to keep the the lead. But I've made a mistake because now I can't erase with this part and I can't really write comfortably with this part of the pencil. And so what we're tempted to do is we just, we try to, in a makeshift way, put it back together. Probably from where you're sitting, that looks pretty good. But I know deep down inside, it's never going to work the exact same way because I compromised. You and I are tempted to do this with our hearts. We compromise. I want you to know that Jesus doesn't want compromise. That's why he says in, God says in the book of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. For my entire adult life, I've been studying the Bible from cover to cover. Most of the time in the original languages. And there's one concept you and I cannot get beyond from Genesis to the maps. It's all about surrender. Are you willing to surrender your life to him? I was visiting a friend's church in Topeka, Kansas, of all places. And um, have you been to anybody from Kansas or Topeka, Kansas? Yeah, well, I know why you're here. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a... A gentleman that came to Christ who struggled with gambling. And my friend had told me, hey, he's 
kind of in this cycle of constantly recommitting, 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 and he doesn't really mean it. So if he comes forward, make sure that he means it. So I sat with this guy and I said, do you understand what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross? And he said, Bernie, he, I belonged on the cross and he took my place. I said, yeah. I said, and why did he do that? He said, because of God's love. And I go, why did God's love have to do it? He said, because of my sin. I said, tell me about sin. He goes, sin, it separates me from God. That's what it does, right? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin separates. And I said, what does Christ's death on the cross do? He says, it, it unites. I said, you, you understand that, I said, is the only reason you're doing this because you want to go to heaven? He goes, well, I want to go to heaven. Got to be honest with you. But no, I know that he wants my entire life. I said, you know he wants you to surrender to him. Yes, I said, repeat that to me. He said, I want to surrender my life to Christ. And he saw that I wasn't really sure that I was, well, he was saying was being truthful. He goes, uh, Pastor, do you gamble? Have you ever gambled? And I go, well, it's funny you say that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I've never gambled before. He goes, have you ever played poker before? I said, no, I've never played poker. My kids want me to teach them, but I don't know how to play poker. I said that in the first service. We had 10 guys say, hey, I'll teach you how to play <laughs> poker. He goes, well, when you, when you play poker, when you gamble, when you're going to place a bet, if you want to ride your entire bet on something, you say, I'm all in. And you put everything in. He goes, do you know what that means? I go, well, I, I think I know what it means. He goes, it means that there's no plan B. Like, this is it. And I said, what does that have to do with Jesus Christ? And he goes, I'm all in. I'm ready. I want to surrender my life to him. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar. Give the coin back to Caesar. Whose image is on you? God. Give your life to God. That's what Jesus is saying. They want to talk about loyalty. He wants to talk about lordship. There's really three ways for you to respond to this message, for me to respond to this message. Response number one is you could do what I did for a long time. You could run. You could have a rebel heart. You can be like Jonah, a prophet on the run, constantly trying to outrun God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. When I was running from God, I would never tell anyone I'm running from God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness. I, I thought I was running from myself, my issues, because I wouldn't surrender them to God. And whenever I would stop to catch my breath, I would look down and see my shadow. It was right there. I couldn't outrun myself or God. You can do that. It's exhausting. But that's one response. You can just say, I'm going to have a rebel heart. You know, that you're beginning a series on life on mission, life with purpose. If you have a rebel heart, your life will never have the fully realized purpose that God's created it to have. In other words, you are not useful in God's hands and in his kingdom. The other option is not a rebel heart. You could have a divided heart. You could say, I'm going to give God this part, but I'm going to keep this part. And I wish I could tell you, you know what, that's a nice step. It's a good first step to have. But I would be lying to you. God doesn't want a divided heart. He doesn't want divided worship. He doesn't want divided allegiance. 
He wants option three. He wants a surrendered heart. A surrendered heart that says, I'm all in. There is no plan B. You are everything. Jesus, for years, I thought you were supposed to serve me so I would call upon you when I needed something. And now I'm beginning to realize that you don't serve me, I serve you. You don't revolve around me, I'm supposed to revolve around you. That's what he wants from you. He wants a surrendered heart. Not a rebel one. Not a divided one. A surrendered one. Say, Bernie, you have no idea what I've done. I don't. But I do know that Jesus Christ is an expert in picking up greasy, dirty, defaced pennies and washing them, making them brand new. You see, when I was swimming in that race, I... um, I held back. I played it safe. I wanted to make sure I had energy left over. My coach wanted me to say, I'm all in. I'm going to go as hard as I can because that's what he wants from me. That's what your heavenly coach wants from you. He wants you to say you're all in. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in our midst right now. We thank you that your Holy Spirit right now is revealing areas in our lives that we really need to surrender and turn over to you. Thank you for stooping down, condescending, humbling yourself to pick us up, to wash us off, so that you could use us for your glory. Help us to say as a church, help us to say as individuals, help us to say as a family, we are all in. We surrender everything to you. We pray this for the glory of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, and in the name of Jesus. And all of God's people say, Amen.